Sunday mornings, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to cover the second half of chapter 2. And in it, we'll find that Jesus runs into conflict with the religious establishment of his day. When we notice this, we we notice that it was nothing wrong in Jesus that made him run into conflict with the religious establishment. No, instead, there was something wrong with the religious establishment, with the religious culture and institution of Jesus' day. It's something that really makes us give examination as we take a look here, beginning the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Jesus has been conducting ministry around the shores of the Sea of Galilee. There's many villages set around there, and Jesus would go from village to village, teaching, instructing the people. Let's remember that primarily that was his ministry. As it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth, Jesus said. And so he was fulfilling that ministry, going from town to town, uh, preaching the word of God. And Jesus knew how to stay on this focus uh, of teaching the word of God. But here he is one day walking along the, the shores of Galilee, and he passes by and he sees a man, a tax collector at the tax collector's office. The man's name was Levi. He's also known in the Bible as Matthew. As a matter of fact, he's the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And here this man, a a Jewish man at the tax collector's table, Levi, also known as Matthew. And and as he sat behind the table, Jesus knew very well how this man was regarded by people in the culture of that day. Tax collectors were hated. Maybe not a whole lot different today. Most people don't love the tax collector a whole lot today, but it was an entirely different thing in Jesus' day. Because as low opinion as you might have of the tax collector, at the same time in Jesus' day, they saw them as people who not only collected taxes, they looked at the tax collector and they saw that man is a traitor and that man is an extortioner. Well, why would they say he was a traitor? You see, the Jewish people of Jesus' day rightly considered tax collectors traitors because they collected taxes on behalf of the Roman government. Let's not forget that in Jesus' day, the land of Judea and the land of Galilee was occupied by a hostile army. That is, the army of the Romans. It didn't belong to the Jewish people. It wasn't the country of Israel. This was occupied Judea and Galilee of the Roman Empire, and they held sway over that land. And it was oppressive to them. They didn't like the taxation. You know, it cost a lot of money for the Romans to keep their legions there. And how do you pay for it all? Well, you tax the people that you're oppressing. It's not a very pleasant system. Now, if you were a tax collector, you were a collaborator with the Romans. You worked for them. You took the money from the good Jewish people and you gave it to the Romans. They looked at a tax collector and they said, you're a traitor. You're trading in the, the, the people of God for money. But not only did they consider traitors, the tax collectors, they also considered the tax collectors extortioners. Now, if you think it's bad today in the way that people pay and collect taxes... You should have been there in the first century in Jesus' day. Because you have to remember how a tax collector made his living. You see, first of all, he had to buy his place in office. 
a Roman governor sees that there's some positions for tax collectors coming open. And so what does he do? He auctions them off. He says, well, a thousand denarii or uh, a 1,500 denarii. Who's going to give me the highest price? And all these people would come in and bid the highest price to purchase the office of being a taxer. You had a monetary investment in having that job. Well, then how did the tax collector do his work? Well, the Roman official over him said, well, over the next six months, I want you to bring in so much money, say 500 denarii. I want you to bring in that much money from your region. That's how much you better put on my uh, table uh, at the end of six months. The tax collector says, fine. And then anything he can gain over that amount goes into his pocket. Let me put it to you this way. The tax collector had absolutely no incentive to give the taxpayer a break. None at all. Because every time he could overcharge a taxpayer, the money went into his pocket. Every time he could cheat a taxpayer, the money went into his pocket. And if the taxpayer wouldn't pay, well then great, you turn him over to the Roman soldier who's sitting right over your shoulder. It's a pretty sweet arrangement from the standpoint of making money. It's not a pleasant arrangement from the standpoint of being popular and making friends. Tax collectors were total outcasts in Jewish society. Completely. If you were a tax collector, well, first of all, you couldn't be a a witness in a court of law. You were excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of almost everybody, not only were you disgraced, but your entire family was disgraced because you were a tax collector. Now, it's to this fellow that Jesus is walking by, and maybe he walks by the table and does a double take and stops and looks back, and then he looks at the man and he says to him, follow me. Everybody else hated tax collectors. Everybody else wanted nothing to do with them. But Jesus loved and he called Levi. And it was a very well-placed love because you can see what Levi's response was there. Look at it there in verse 14. It says at the end of the verse, and he arose and followed him immediately. There's no uh, long thought about it. He says, this man wants me. Jesus wants me. I've heard of this man. I heard him teaching off in the distance. I heard his message. He wants me to follow him. I'm following him. And let me tell you, it was something more of a sacrifice for Levi to follow Jesus than many of the other disciples. Oh, sure, Peter, James, John, they were fishermen. They had their fishing business. And yeah, it was something for them to walk away from the boats or to walk away from the nets. But they could just say to a relative or a friend, hey, keep an eye on my boat, keep an eye on my nets. And they could go back to the fishing business every anytime they wanted to. Matter of fact, we find it towards the end of the Gospels. They go back to the fishing business for a while. But not Levi. No, you turn your back on this job. They're never going to give it to you again. And there's no way you're ever going to hold that job. You lose all that financial investment. You're laying it all on the line. And here's a man who says, listen, I don't care how much money I've made at this job. I'm going to serve. I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ. And he followed him. There's something else about this that I think is amazing. You see, there's archaeological evidence that fish taken from the Sea of Galilee were taxed directly. As the fishermen brought in their catches, and if you notice here, it says that Jesus came and he saw Levi as he was walking by the sea. Levi must have had his tax collecting table near the water. He probably was assessing taxes on the fish that came right out of the Sea of Galilee because we know from archaeological records that such fish catches were were taxed. So guess who used to pay taxes probably directly to Levi? Peter, James, John, these fishermen. So there's Peter, James, and John, you know, Andrew. They're off, you know, having lunch somewhere. 
And Jesus says, guys, guess what? I got a new disciple. He's going to join our group. Look, I want you to meet him. And then just the faces fall of these guys. Because this guy, Levi, has been ripping them off for years. Can you imagine all the arguments they've gotten and all the disputes all the time when Levi had to glance at the Roman soldier standing behind him, you know, to settle the issue there. And he says, hey, he's one of us now. Can you imagine how Levi fell? How the other disciples fell? Yeah, I love this. I love this about Jesus. You know, he doesn't mess around with all these questions. Well, you know, he doesn't really like him, and, and he doesn't like him, and I don't know if we can have them together in the same group, and maybe there'll be some... Jesus says, forget it. I'm here, Jesus says. And, and Jesus is so much greater than any of the differences that they have, that as long as they're together in Jesus, they're together. And forget about all those other differences. Forget about all the arguments. Forget about the disputes. So I ripped you off before. Well, I'm sorry. We're following Jesus together now, right? Right. They just put it all behind them and they moved on, although it must have made for some pretty awkward introductions. (laughs) Now notice what Levi does next here in verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Apparently, Levi had it on his mind. Well, let's throw a going away party, right? It's my retirement dinner. I've got a lot of friends that I want to meet Jesus. And so we'll invite Jesus and all my new friends, the disciples, and I'll invite all my old friends, the tax collectors and the people who would hang around with them, which was pretty much the bottom of the barrel. And they all get together and they have a great big dinner together at Levi's house. Now, can you imagine that scene? you imagine how awkward the disciples felt at that scene? Now it's not only Levi who ripped them off, here's this other guy who's still ripping them off, and there they are at a big dinner there together. And then there's this notorious person, that notorious person. But forget it, they're all there together. It doesn't seem to bother Jesus in the, me- in the least. There he is together with them all. Matter of fact, the people were so drawn by who Jesus was. Look at at the end of verse 15. It says, for there were many and they followed him. In other words, when the people got to hang out with Jesus, when they got to see his love for them and the way he cared about them, well, it changed their heart. They said, we want to be followers of this man. People went into that dinner sinners. They left followers of Jesus. Ah, but here you have sort of the controversy, don't you? That Jesus is showing himself to be the friend of tax collectors and sinners. What a scandal. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Well, of course, the sinners knew this, and they responded to Jesus' love, and they followed him. I think this is something that we need to communicate to the world much, much better than we do. If you think about it, how many people have the impression of Jesus in our country that he's truly the friend of sinners, that he loves sinners, that he cares for them? Now, we know how this idea is taken and warped and twisted sometimes in our culture. Sometimes you'll have people marching down the street in great defiance and pride and maybe in the midst of a sinful lifestyle and they'll carry a placard that says, Jesus loves me just the way I am. And theologically, I'd have to say that their sign is correct. Jesus does love them just the way that they are. But let's remember that Jesus loves us even in the midst of our sin, but he loves us too much to leave us in our sin, and he wants to redeem us out of it. That's the whole point. 
know, the glorious message that we can preach as, as Christians is that Jesus loves you exactly where you're at. Exactly. And then he wants to have his love transform your life and lift you up out of your place where it happens just like it is in verse 15, where it says there were a lot of sinners there, a lot of tax collectors, for there were many and they followed him. Isn't that marvelous? So yes, yes, Jesus loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us in that place. But I don't know if the message is getting out from the church. You know, we have a way of sort of building walls around ourselves very well. We sometimes try to make our lives so insulated. We try to make sure that we never have to rub shoulders with any sinners. You know, we do the best to hang out with Christians all the time. And I can understand. I mean, fellowship is wonderful. It's wonderful to be in a positive, affirming environment. But you know how that can go overboard. You know, you look for the Christian supermarket to buy your groceries at, and then the Christian tire store to buy your tires at, and the Christian this and the Christian that, and pretty much you've made your whole life around to where, well, you don't talk to a sinner for four or five weeks. shouldn't be like that, should it? We shouldn't isolate ourselves that way. Because, folks, it's wonderful what we have here on a Sunday morning. It's wonderful that we come together. We, We have our sanctuary. We have our service. We have our teaching. It's marvelous. But we just can't do what we do here on a Sunday morning and then just cry out to the world and say, well, if you ever want to stop by, here we are. No, the idea is here we are on a Sunday morning and and we're all being equipped together by the word of God. We're all being nourished and fed and strengthened in our own Christian walk. And then out from this room, leave hundreds of missionaries on a Sunday morning. And there's your mission field. It's out there in the world. It's out there where you rub shoulders with people who don't know Jesus. And God gives you the opportunity to touch their life and to show them the love of Jesus. That's the whole vision here. Here, this is just the, the training room, so to speak. And then we send the missionaries out. We send them out every week. Aren't you glad God's given you a mission field? We just spoke with a young woman in our congregation, came back from a month-long mission trip in Mongolia. Isn't that great? Got to go there and just be used to the Lord. Wonderful thing. 500-mile trips over the the just bare ground, no roads, just going over dirt roads and such. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. Remarkable ministry. It's great. You know, God has a mission field for you right here, right with the people that you hang around with all the time. So notice the objection that comes up here in verse 16. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you love it? They're not man enough to bring the objection to Jesus himself. They bring it to the disciples. They whisper behind his back, well, why don't you just go to Jesus himself? Why don't you look him square in the eye and say, Jesus, why is it that you're eating with tax collectors and sinners? But they don't. They they ask the disciples instead. But Jesus heard of it. Look at verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, Jesus' answer is brilliant, isn't it? It's both simple and it's profound. Jesus is saying, I'm the physician of the soul. It makes sense for me to be with the sick people. What would you think of a doctor who never wanted to be around sick people? Just well people. Just wanted to hang out with the well people. Sick person comes into his office, get out of here, you're sick. (laughs) What, are you trying to kill me? Come on, no, go away. I just want healthy people around me. Well, it's not going to work that way, is it? I mean, a doctor, a doctor is around sick people. 
And I think it's amazing here in verse 17, Jesus speaks about those who are well and who have no need of a physician. Now, who would be in that group? Nobody. Well, the Pharisees were just as sick as the people that Jesus was around and eating with. No, you see, everybody has this sickness. Everybody needs the ministry of Jesus. Everybody needs the great physician. Very, very common misunderstanding in our culture today. You know, the... If you think about it, why would a person be sick and need to go to the doctor, but not go to the doctor? Well, the, the number one reason you could think of is that they don't know that they're sick. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? There's some slow developing disease within a person. It comes along gradually. It works its way in slowly. And they don't know they're sick. They're not aware that they're ill. And perhaps their life is hanging in the balance. They don't even know it. They're not aware of it. They feel pretty good. No, but they're, they're sick and they need to go to the doctor, but they don't know it. Well, I suppose there's some people in that place, aren't there, spiritually speaking? They're sick, they're ill, but they don't know it. I find, by and large, that people in our culture today, they're not hostile towards Christianity. They just don't think it's for them. They think it's great. Well, that skid roll bum, that guy down on his luck there in the inner city, look at him, he's in the gutter, he's alcoholic. I'm so glad that he found Jesus, because he needs it. What about them? Well, no, I'm fine. And then they look at Christianity and they say, well, look, it's a, it's a crutch. It's fine for people who need a crutch, but I don't need a crutch. No, you're, you're right. We need a whole hospital. We don't need a crutch. <laughs> We're much, much far beyond the crutch stage. But if we don't realize it, then we're in a lot of trouble. Now, maybe that's you, honestly speaking. I mean, cut away all the, the spiritual things we say. But honestly speaking, maybe that's you. Honestly, you just feel like you don't need Jesus that much. And, you know, it's great for the people who need him, but you're just not one of those people. And, and you know, you, you don't have this feeling that you're sick and need the physician. Well, what about that? Well, I just simply say this, if, if you feel like you're not really aware of your need for God, very simple experiment I'd like you to conduct. Why don't you pray before you go to bed tonight and ask God this. Say, God, if I really need you, then show me that I need you. I invite you to pray that prayer. I think it's kind of a dangerous prayer to pray because God will show you how much you need him. And, uh, well, who knows what might happen. But it'll come upon you. I think God will be faithful to show you. He'll show you just how much you need him. Just remember, you prayed that prayer. And when things come into your life that show your desperate need for God, just don't think, well, that's bad luck or that's bad karma or what a bad day. Say, no, God's showing me my need for him. Well, I think there's other times a problem. Perhaps some people are sick and, and they, they uh, think they need a doctor, but they think, well, no, you know, I, I can get better on my own. But that isn't the case with the spiritual sickness that we have, right? Other people might be sick and they know they need to go to a doctor, but they don't know that there is a doctor. They don't know that there is somebody who can help them, who wants to help them. Isn't that the great message we have to preach as Christians? That there is a great physician, that your soul is sick, and here's someone who wants to bring healing and, and a cure to your life. The doctor wants to help you. Of course, we know, too, that there's some people who are sick and, and they really wish they could go to a doctor. Maybe they know of a fine doctor that they could go to and they really want to. The problem is they say, I can't pay the doctor bill. Isn't that great about Jesus, the great physician? 
He's perfect in his diagnosis, perfect in his cure. He's always available. He makes house calls, and he even pays the bill. Isn't that beautiful, the ministry of Jesus? But then finally, I think that there's one great thing that trips people up if we want to take this analogy that Jesus gave to us about the sickness and sin and the need to repent. You know, perhaps you're a person, you know you're sick, you know you need a doctor, you know that a doctor's available, you know the doctor cares about you, you know that the bill's paid, you know all of that. But have you ever not gone to the doctor just because you knew what the doctor would say and you didn't want to hear it? Well, let me transfer it to another realm. How about the dentist? Have you ever not gone to the dentist because you knew what the dentist was going to say and you just didn't want to hear it? We've all been in that place, haven't we? Well, isn't that why many people don't come to Jesus? They know their need. They know that Jesus is there. They know he's available. They know that the price is paid. They know it's all there. But you know what? They, they just don't want to hear it. They'd rather suffer with it, suffer with the consequences, say, you know what, I, I just, I'd rather just suffer through it. And you know what they end up doing? Suffering through it. I'll tell you that the very tragic thing about that is if you consider there's all many things you could say in regard to a person in that situation, but one thing you cannot say is that it's the doctor's fault that that person is the way they are. The doctor's office is open. He says, I'm the great physician, come on in. And if you say, well, I know what he's going to say, I I don't want to hear it. There's really no one to blame but yourself for your state. So this ends this little section of Jesus' dispute about the, the dinner there at Levi's house. But now here in verse 18, kind of a related question. It says, and the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came in and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast But your disciples do not fast. The Pharisees were well known for their fasting. Luke chapter 18, verse 12 tells us that it was the custom of the Pharisees to fast twice a week. And it made sense for the disciples of John the Baptist to fast. I mean, his ministry stressed repentance. And so that kind of mourning or affliction of soul was appropriate. But Jesus and his disciples didn't seem to fast. Matter of fact, they seemed to have a little bit too much fun. You wonder if this isn't occasioned by this whole uh, party that they had at Levi's house. And you see people walking by and looking into the windows and looking into the doors. And they're saying, what's going on here? And they're thinking, you know, this guy's having a little bit too much fun for a holy man. What's up with this? Why doesn't he afflict his soul like the Pharisees do and why the disciples of John do? Now, we should say this about fasting, that God is not against fasting. Matter of fact, we would say that God is for fasting. Fasting has its time and its place in the Christian life. And I would say many of us are guilty because fasting has no time or no place in our Christian life. And so we're out of balance. But these were people coming to it from the other side of the balance. And Jesus has an answer to them. Look at it here in verse 19. He says, so Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. A marvelous picture Jesus paints here, because in the Jewish way of thinking, there was no more joyful occasion for the everyday person than a wedding feast. That was the top. That was the most joyful time in anybody's life, because basically, when somebody got married, they called a week-long party. And that party 
was the number one rule was to have a good time. Matter of fact, the rabbis said that if there was any commandment of the commandments of God that got in the way of having a good time during a wedding feast, you didn't have to keep it. Go ahead and have fun. So let's say, you know, somebody has to go and get more food on the Sabbath day and buy food. We say, well, you know, I don't want to break the Sabbath and buy more food, but we need more food for the party. Everybody's not going to have a good time if there's no food. They'd say, don't worry about that Sabbath regulation. You go and buy more food because it's more important for you to have fun at this party. They'd say, all right, great, we'll go do it. It was a very important thing. Let's have a great time at the wedding party. Jesus said, this is what it's like when I'm here. We're here, we're having a wonderful party. And Jesus' message was very bold, it was very clear here. He's saying, now, I'm not like the Pharisees, I'm not like John the Baptist, I'm the Messiah. I'm the bridegroom to the people of God. And wherever I am, it's appropriate to have the kind of joy that we have at a wedding. Here I am, I'm the bridegroom, the bridegroom is here. The other thing that Jesus really makes mention of and, and, and focuses on here is that it, it won't always be like that. He goes, look, it's, time's going to come when, when I'm taken away, when I'm not here. And then they'll fast. Then there'll be a time for fasting. Then it's appropriate, but not at the present time. Now notice this in verse 21. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. You see, as the people looked at Jesus' ministry, many of them said, this doesn't make sense. A holy man shouldn't be having this much fun. A holy man shouldn't laugh this much. A holy man shouldn't enjoy himself with other people this much. This isn't right. And Jesus says, look, I'll tell you what the problem is, is that you're locked in your religious traditions. And you can't just put what I'm bringing you and put it over your old religious traditions because it'll break, it'll tear, it'll burst. And he gives the example. There you are, you're trying to patch up, let's say, a bed sheet. And you've washed that sheet many times before, and so it's all done shrinking, right? And then you take a piece of unshrunk cloth, and you put a nice, tight, good patch on a little tear that was in the bed sheet. What's going to happen the next time you watch it? The, the patch will shrink, and it'll pull away from the sides of the rest of the bed sheet, and you'll have a big tear there. She says, you can't just put what I have as a patch over what you're doing. No! You're right, it looks different. You're right, this is different than what you have before. And that's how you have to receive it as something different, as something revolutionary. The business with the wine and the wineskins was the same idea. They would put wine into a wineskin unfermented. And it would ferment in the wineskin and it would stretch it out. Well, if you took a wineskin that was already stretched and put new wine into it, when it stretched it even more, boom, it would burst. I don't know if it would pop, but it would at least crack, and all the wine would be spilled out. So you get the picture. Jesus is saying, listen, what I have to bring you is something new. I'm not just here to patch us something old. And friends, that's what salvation is all about. So many people have a misconception of this. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, patch up this area of my life. I'm in real desperation, Jesus. I, I want you to please patch up this area. And they look for Jesus to come and put the Jesus patch on this area of their life. Jesus says, no, I don't want to do that. What I want to do, I want to give you a whole new life. We're not talking about just putting a patch somewhere. 
patch here, patch there. So life looks, well, look, it's the same life as it was before. Just a few nice patches on it here and there. No. Just, I'm not here to patch up the old. I'm here to give you new life. And I want to fulfill the new. I want to make it something glorious. So that's how we need to come to Jesus. Do you understand that about the Christian life? Maybe you came to Jesus because there was some crisis, some problem. And honestly speaking, all you were pretty much looking for was Jesus to patch up that problem in your life. Can you realize that Jesus is looking at you now this morning and he says, you know, I want a whole lot more than that. I want, to, I want everything to be different. I want to put new wine into new wineskins. So I want to change everything from the inside out. Now here we have the final controversy. First, Jesus had a controversy with the uh, scribes and the Pharisees over the big dinner at, at Levi's house. And then he had the controversy over fasting. Now we have a, a third controversy beginning at verse 23 where it says, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? It was in the law of Israel that a farmer was not to completely harvest his field, but he was supposed to leave some at the edges and some at the ends so that people, scavengers, could come through and they could glean. Maybe a poor person could come through and get a little bit of grain for themselves or for travelers as they walked down the road, they could go to the farmer's field and take a little piece of the produce that was on the ground. Now, what the disciples were doing at this time was they came by and they, they were walking through a grain field. And so they go and they go and they break off the top of a little stalk of grain. And there it is. They have the, the kernels of wheat in their hand. And what they would do is they would rub them together and that would rub off the chaff and just leave sort of the kernel of the wheat in there. And they'd blow it and that would blow away the chaff and leave the heavier kernel of wheat there. And then they'd pop it in their mouth, eating wheat germ there on the side of the road, walking along, making their way along. Yeah, it was a nice little snack for them. The Pharisees saw this and they freaked out. They said, they're doing this on the Sabbath. Now, please understand, the issue wasn't that they were doing this. The issue was that they were doing this on the Sabbath. You should know that the rabbis of Jesus' day had an elaborate list of do and don't items relevant to the Sabbath. And this violated one of the things on the list. You see, they said that when the disciples went over there and plucked the grain and rubbed it in their hands and blew off and ate it, they said, well, first of all, you're reaping then you're threshing, then you're winnowing, and then finally you're preparing food for yourself. Look at it, it's, it's four violations of the Sabbath in every mouthful. We can't have this. And listen, friends, the bottom line is this was not a violation of the Sabbath. What do you think Jesus would do if he was walking along with his disciples and the disciples started to break the Sabbath? He'd say, Peter, don't do that. God's given us the law of the Sabbath and we should keep it. Don't do that. And people would say, oh, okay. They'd walk along, but Jesus walked. His approving eye was upon it all. Jesus knew that this was not a violation of the Sabbath, but it was a violation of the human regulations of man's rules put around the command of the Sabbath. And isn't that what trips us up so often? It's not God's command. It's what man puts apart on top of God's command. Well, here, at the same time, that's exactly what they had done in the rabbinic Judaism of Jesus' day, especially in regard to the Sabbath. You know, ancient rabbis taught that on the Sabbath, a man couldn't carry something in his right hand, he couldn't carry something in his left hand. He, he couldn't put it on his shoulder, he couldn't carry a burden across his chest. But you could carry something 
with the back of your hand. Or you could carry something with your foot, or your elbow, or your ear, or your hair, or tie it in the hem of your shirt, or put it on your shoe or on your sandal. That was okay. That wasn't work. But this is one of my favorite ones. On the Sabbath, you were forbidden from tying a knot in a piece of rope. So there you are. You're a farmer. Your family's thirsty. You need to get the bucket down to the bottom of the well, but the ropes come undone. So what do you do? You can't tie a knot on the Sabbath. Well, what, what, what do I do? Well, you remember. You can't tie a knot in a piece of rope, but a woman can tie a knot in her girdle. And so you call your wife out. Honey, can you tie the, your girdle to the rope and then tie the other end of the bucket and then we can raise it up? That's not work. You see how there was just all these regulations on top of everything. And that's why they said, verse 24, look, why do they do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Now again, let me stress that Jesus was observant of the Old Testament law as it was correctly understood from the Old Testament. But it looks to me I have to say I admire Jesus a bit in this, that he almost looked for ways to break man's, you know, uh, crust on top of the law of God. And he just kind of looked for ways to just, well, you know what I mean there. Verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. She said, wait, you don't understand anything. These men, these disciples of mine, they're hungry. And Jesus says, you need to understand that human need is more important than ritual observance. And David gives the example of this in the Old Testament. One time when David and his men were hungry and on the run, they came up to the tabernacle of God and they had this bread that was holy bread and consecrated to God and only the priest could eat it. But David and his men were in a time of need and so the priest gave it to David and his men to eat it. It was a violation of the religious ritual, but human need was greater than religious rituals. Do we, do we understand that? Human need is greater than religious rituals. So you're getting ready for church one morning and, you know, you had your breakfast and you go out and you get the newspaper on the driveway and you're, you're going to be going in a few minutes and you look and there's your neighbor moving and they desperately need help. Friends, the most Christian thing you could do on that morning would not be to not go to church and to help your neighbor move. Human need is more important than ritual observance. Go to church Sunday night. You've got a service here Sunday night. Help your neighbor move in the day and then go to church another time. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Yes, you need to be in the word of God. Yes, you need to worship with God's people. But listen, human need is important too. Really, helping people and doing good works, that's not the enemy of church attendance. You know, it's sleeping in and, and staying up too late the night before and I just don't want to go and there's something good on the television or something like that. And so we need to understand this. We need to take it very seriously. But notice something else that Jesus says here in verse 27. This is the second reason why they were wrong in their criticism of the disciples. It says, And he said to them that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. 
You see, the second principle is even more dramatic. Jesus declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And if he, the the very Lord of the Sabbath, if he wasn't offended by his disciples' actions, then these sign-lied critics shouldn't have been offended either. Doesn't Jesus know when the Sabbath's being violated and when it isn't? He had every right to say, well, listen, you guys don't understand this. I know, I know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, don't you see here that Jesus takes such an exalted title to himself? I don't know of anybody who's the Lord of the Sabbath except the Lord God himself. And Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He must have seen their jaws drop when he said that. Well, who do you think you are? Well, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so our chapter ends with Jesus taking this great exalted place. But do you notice all through these verses that we've covered here this morning, do you see Jesus shaking things up? He called Levi, the unexpected man to call. And he says, I'm going to call that man. I'm going to use him. You follow me. And of course, Jesus calls you this morning, doesn't he? What will you answer to his call? And then Jesus brought joy to others. There he was at the party. There he was at the feast. And well, he was in the midst of it all. Jesus wants to bring joy into your life. Then we find Jesus putting himself before religious rituals. He says, it's more important to honor me. It's more important to meet human need. I'm in first place. But will you receive Jesus being in that place? Will you recognize him as being the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and having the Lord God over every day on the calendar? Friends, that's how Jesus leads us this morning. And so we see that in the midst of all this controversy, Jesus is untouched by it. The critics come, the critics go, but he stands as the Lord God with whom we have to deal. We say, Lord, make me like that. Let my light shine. Make me like Jesus. A friend of sinners in the best, in the rightest kind of way before you. Let's pray and ask God to confirm this to our hearts together. Lord God, I pray that you would make us like Jesus. You know, Lord, we need a Lord to follow. We need someone to be the Lord of the Sabbath and the Lord of every day on the calendar of our lives. Father, in the same way, we also need to follow Jesus. We need to follow his great example of being the friend of sinners and not isolating himself from sinners. Help us to do that, Lord. There's so much set before us in our lives. We want to be a light to shine in every dark place. But you have to do a work in our lives first. Lord, finally, we remember this morning that You haven't come just to patch up a few things in our life. Lord, if there's some area in our lives where we've been pushing you away and and not wanting you to show your lordship over, then we relent from that right now and we say, Lord, no, change even that. Let the newness of your work extend to every part of our being. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.